0: and welcome to another episode of the end of sport a podcast on capitalist sport labor and harm in sporting culture with your hosts johanna mellis nathan Kalman lamb and derek silva if you're enjoying the show please reach out to us on twitter or instagram at end of sport pod or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com where you can find details on how to support the show via patreon with that said we hope you enjoyed this episode of The End of Sport.
1: Kiera McCormick is a former college and pro soccer player who played at Yale University and the U- University of Connecticut, and later professionally for a wide variety of top teams for seven years, ranging from ranging from the Boston Renegades and Vancouver Whitecaps Women. to to teams in Denmark, Norway, and Australia. She also played for the Republic of Ireland from 2008 to 2014. She moreover was the first Canadian player to make it to the Champions League final, which is really, really impressive. And to top off her achievements even more, she also has a whopping total of three master's degrees on subjects related to women's soccer. Importantly, Kira has spoken out publicly about the verbal, emotional, and sexual abuse the Bob Berarda, and by default the Vancouver Whitecaps women te- women's team and the Canadian Soccer Association that passed them around inflicted on its players. And finally, Kira is the founder of Girls Can Soccer and Top Soccer, both of which we will certainly get to on the in the back end of the interview. First, thank you, Kira, for speaking out, as we really cannot imagine that doing so is easy at all. Thank you so much for your willingness to talk about it with us today, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So first, we would like to ask you, how are you doing as we near the end of this really awful year of 2020 in California?
2: Um, I actually, I mean, I, I think it's been a struggle probably like for most people in the sense of um, I live on my own. So, um, you know, I've had a lot of like your time over the last bunch of months. Um, But no, it's been kind of yeah, last year, obviously with everything that happened was a pretty hectic, crazy year. And so it actually was quite nice just to sort of have a chance to have a slow year and, um, yeah, lots of time for self-reflection and, um, yeah, it hasn't been, it hasn't been bad, but I'm looking forward to getting back to regular life, hopefully at some stage. Aren't we all? Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Um, now, before we, to, before we dive into the heavy topics, it'd be really great to get a sense of your background um, in terms of how you got involved in playing soccer to begin with. And as the resident historian who is sort of always trying to piece together people's lives within somewhat of a broader historical context, it'd be great if he could sort of provide us with some sort of rough dates or years for when you got involved, how, how your career developed and things like that.
2: Um, yeah, so I, um, I guess I'm going to have to out how old I am. <laughs> Just um, but no, so I, I, uh, yeah, when I was seven is when I started to play. Um, my parents are Irish immigrants, uh, to Vancouver. So it was like, I guess, uh, 86, 87, um, when I got involved and actually the story of how I got involved is kind of a funny one in that my brother actually, is younger than me and he um went to his first soccer game you know my parents my dad was all excited to sign him up and I guess at his first game I threw a fit as to like why he got to play soccer and I didn't um were like you know they didn't even know girls could play soccer um you know in Ireland I guess they hadn't seen it so um yeah so my dad looked it up uh found that uh there was like a local team and then he actually ended up getting roped into being the coach and he didn't really know that much about soccer um yeah so that was kind of how I got in to it. Um, yeah. And I was like really sporty. Um, and, uh, yeah. And it was kind of just like my thing with my dad. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I did that. Um, I kind of joke my club team growing up was like the bad news bears, like every terrible kid that like came into town ended up on our team, but it was, you know, whatever it was like, um, definitely different to how it is now in terms of, like I said, my dad didn't really have a soccer background and just sort of tried to like, you know, keep us sort of at the field and not getting into trouble during practice. And, um, yeah, so that was sort of, um, I guess I didn't really have, uh, anyone that really knew anything until I was going into eighth grade. Um, and that's when we sort of streamed teams in the area, there was five teams. And so, um, I was actually one of the last picks in eighth grade. Um, and, um, yeah. And so I was actually my first year of club soccer. Yeah. So when I was 13, um, I, yeah, I was basically on the bench the whole year. um, And then I always joke that I got my big break in ninth grade when one of my teammates snuck out and got grounded from everything that included soccer. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So that was like my big break. And then Um, I had a late birthday, so I was lucky enough to make the provincial team again, just barely, but for the year younger. Um, and so, yeah, and I just, I, I really honestly, looking back growing up, I necessarily didn't have coaches that had like a ton of technical and tactical soccer expertise, but like they just were amazing people that really cared about me as a person. And, um, yeah, so I have to say honestly, and even my college coaches as well at Yale and at UConn were both like very um, yeah, like soccer was just a really really fun place and I, I loved to be there and um, and also too, I think another thing, that kind of like drove, I guess, my great factor. My mom has multiple sclerosis. So she got diagnosed when I was six. So um, yeah, so I kind of grew up with my mom, like her health getting progressively worse. And so soccer was kind of my, I guess, like respite from, you know, obviously also to, I guess, growing up in an Irish family, you don't really talk about, um, you know, feelings or anything like that or I don't know. Um, But yeah, so soccer was kind of where I put, I guess, all my kind of, you know that was, and I loved it honestly. Like it was, it was like just my passion. Um, and so I think, like you know, looking back through my you know high school and even college career, um, yeah, like I started one game in college at Yale. Um, and so yeah, and, and I look back at sort of, I guess how I stayed motivated. Um, you, you know, kind of I always it was always like a, a fight, kind of with everything to you know just I always had to put in so much work to kind of continue to climb the ranks and sat on tons of benches and stuff. But, um, I think like maybe I had a bit of a different perspective to most kids in the sense of like, you kind of have a bit more perspective when you, you know, see your parent sick and, and kind of understand there's more to life than soccer, even though soccer was totally my life, if that makes sense.
0: Oh no, totally. And, and to sort of set up the rest of the episode, I, I, I'd like to ask you just about your the sort of foundational experiences that you had in in the sport before the White Caps and before the sort of um things we'll get into um later. Would you say that like fun was the foundation of your participation in soccer um through youth and through um the your your club and college uh, careers?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like I mean yeah, it, it, I mean, even like one of my a lot of my best friends are still from my soccer days, and and honestly, like it, we literally had so much fun. <laughs> like, yeah. like it was, yeah, like it just even now when I see, you know, obviously my work is I, I do a lot of work with elite youth players, and I see the kind of just a shift in like the stress of youth soccer, and and um, yeah, and I just feel so grateful that um, I just really you know i was able to play like i played i mean i did like uh yeah springboard diving cross country running um i played on a boys baseball team i played softball i played volleyball um i did gymnastics i did springboard diving like i did all those things competitively at one point or another through middle school and high school and and um you know i didn't quit have to like give up a sport till i was my senior year of high school i sort of decided that i was really going to you know, just focused on soccer, obviously, because I was trying to get a scholarship and stuff. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I feel so fortunate. Like, I always say that. Like, I feel so fortunate that I grew up in an era where – Um, yeah, just kind of, it it just, it was fun. It really, I mean, it it was competitive. And I mean, you know, my teams were good. Like I went to nationals for club when I was in ninth grade. And then, um, you know, my provincial team won the national championship when I was in grade 11. Um, You know, so I was on very high achieving teams, but yeah, I mean, we just, We just had a ton of fun, and we just had coach. I even had a coach like reach out to me on LinkedIn. (laughs) Like, um, yeah, I guess that was the only way he knew how to get a hold of me. But he just. He messaged me and said you know I just drove past this field and it reminded me of when you were in grade 12 and you missed a penalty shot and you were so upset about it and then the next game like I made you take the shot and you you scored and anyways and he's like it just was such a good memory for me and you know and I just was like that's just such a like just it's such a testament to sort of the caring nature of like you know, my coaches back then where it was like, it wasn't like, oh, you're a huge failure. You screwed up a game and missed a penalty shot. It was like, I can see you're upset about it. I want you to like succeed and I'm going to, maybe the team will lose, but I'm going to put you in that position again so you can succeed. And I don't know, it was really touching, but I thought it was like a real example of just the kind of people that I had as coaches. Really honestly, I never had a you know, and even in college and stuff. Like my my college coach, you know, like I don't know, we used to laugh because the men's team. I love the men's team coach too at Yale. Like I was really close with my coach and the men's coach, but you know, he was very you know serious and whatever. And like our Halloween, we'd like our, we'd all dress up in like the most ridiculous Halloween costumes and dress our coach up and like blast music and just have so much fun. And and I don't know, yeah. So I mean, I I think even when I was in college, like it was still fun. And I still had coaches that really, you know, again, and it's tough and it's competitive and all that sort of stuff, but there was just a balance of like, yeah, just, just really feeling cared about as a human being. So.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, you know, it's, I think it's really important too, to kind of show, and I think that's sort of what you're doing to show that Coaching can be like that, and it is like that for some people, whether it's for their whole lives or sort of part of it um and that it, it is sort of like a choice by coaches right to to act one way or the other or sort of some way in between and I, I think we tend to think that you know like coaches oh it's you know they're so focused on winning and that's why they do this or that, and it's like that can be a determining factor for why they maybe choose more like abusive straight up abusive or sort of more abusive tactics, but it can also be done other ways um So, so yeah, so, so thank you for sharing that. Um, And now that we have um, some sense of your background, we'd like to really dig into the the big topic that we're here to talk about today, which is the structure that nurture, that nurture the sexual and emotional, emotional abuse within Canadian soccer. And just as a note to listeners, this is definitely, this is very much a developing story. Um, so even between now when we're recording and when the episode may be released, more details may come out that um, at least it's sort of made public that we may not talk about today. Um, and this is related to um, abuser and sexual perpetrator Bob Berarda, who was only arrested on December 10th, 2020 for his crimes. Now, Berarda was a coach for the Vancouver Whitecaps Women a women's team as well as for Team Canada and the Canadian Olympic women's soccer team in 2008. The charges against him reach back to 1988, which means that he has likely been doing it for decades by the time, Kira, you join the team. Mm-hmm. um and Carrie you are known as the whistleblower who first spoke publicly about the abuse and this is something that we very much like greatly admire you for um as this is extremely difficult in ways that neither Derek nor I or probably most of our listeners can really understand um and you did this in a 2019 post on your website which we will share in the show notes um, where you say a number of really damning and crucial points that deserves to be highlighted. So what we're hoping to do throughout the rest of the episode, because it is such a complicated story, we're hoping to really uh, break it down with you and really walk listeners through it because it is just so complicated. Um, and also, of course, to break down the structure that, enab- that enabled his abuse. Um, and not only the, the structure that he created, but also, importantly, the structure within which he worked and that enabled him Mm-hmm. Um, and and so to start that off, for example, in this 2019 post, you explained how quote in 2005 to 2008, if you were female and wanted to play for Canada, you essentially had to play for the Vancouver Whitecaps. This gave the coaches and organization an unhealthy amount of power, mm-hmm. and the post also uh, goes on to describe how the team is closely aligned with the national team and how um, you as players had to do numerous unpaid appearances for the team all over the city. Mm-hmm. Now, could you explain a bit more about these dynamics and what kind of authority the team wielded over your lives?
2: Yeah, so... um so basically how it unfolded for me was I finished university and then I went over to Denmark. Um, And so I was in Denmark for a couple of years and um, you know, I landed on an amazing team. Like the, we ended up going to the champions league final my first year that I was there. And so, you know, I had sort of, I guess I had maybe a bit more of like a diverse perspective um, than a lot of the girls, because back then also, I think I was only like the third or fourth Canadian player to even sign a contract overseas. So, oh. um, so most people were kind of, you know, based, I'd say the, almost all the players were universe, like they'd gone to university in Canada or the U S and then had a bit of national team experience. So that was sort of, so I guess, in that respect, I maybe had a little bit more of kind of a worldliness to my soccer experience than, you know, some of the girls there, which I think also maybe played a bit more of a role in terms of knowing that there was another way of doing things and, and kind of being aware of it and, you know, sort of juxtaposed that with the way that it was almost red flags that maybe other people didn't see. But, um, so I came back in 2004, um, just because, you know, my goal was to play for Canada. And I felt that I sort of, um, you know, if I was over in Europe, I, I was kind of out of the out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. So um, and everything was basically going on in Vancouver at that time. So I came back. Um, and yeah, so that was kind of how um, that like all the best players for the most part for Canada were based out of Vancouver. Um, and you know, obviously there was players from like the East as well, um, in 2005, but then in 2006, um, Greg Kerfoot, the white caps owner, um, he came on board and, um, dumped a bunch of money into the women's program, which obviously was very exciting because, you know, again, women's soccer players, you know, we weren't making mm-hmm. any money. So the fact that, you know, someone was taking an interest in coming in, um, was a big deal and financially it was a big deal as well. Um 2005 um was when uh I believe it was 2005 2006 but um we it was kind of at that point that I think um you know again we were good friends with guys on the on the men's team and at the time the white caps were um in the second division so the league below the MLS um and we're shooting for an MLS bid but they were still semi pro um on the men's side. So um with sort of the friendships between the two teams like we were hearing how much the guys were making and and obviously that was kind of filtering through our team and and like I said like we had you know Christine Sinclair, Carl Lang, Andrea Neal, Aaron McLeod like the big stars of the Canadian Mm -hmm. women's national team were on the team at the time um and then lots of other good players as well and I think you know we just kind of started to sort of little grumblings about you know we're not making any money our best player is driving from Squamish which is like a place like an hour outside of Vancouver um Mm -hmm. you know she's paying for her gas money and then the guy that's sitting on the bench on the men's team is making 1500 a month and we're getting the same amount of fans to games or close to it and so you know I think that was kind of the first time you know and the narrative you always get as a female athlete at least back then was like you should just be so grateful for this opportunity you know Mm -hmm. and so Uh I think I think we started to kind of be like, um, you know, we deserve something, you know, and mm-hmm. um, and we kind of had a couple of ringleaders within the group. Um, I, I actually wasn't one of them, but we're starting to sort of speak up about it. And so, um, we organized kind of a, a meeting at Boston pizza <laughs> really fast <laughs> that we decided to take our, uh, our issues to. But anyways, yeah. So we, we'd planned a meeting after practice and then at that practice, Um, Bob Lenarduzzi, who was the president of the White Caps at the time, I believe, um, he came and just showed up at practice that day. And he was like, they went on to this whole spiel about how much they appreciated everything that we'd done and blah, blah, blah. And that they had this, you know, stipends they were going to give us for the three months of the season. And it was going to be $425 or $300 or $125 based on our sort of status on the team and our age and all this kind of stuff. And anyways, I mean, really all it did was all of us were just like crap. Like they knew we were going to do something tonight about this. And, you know, now all of a sudden it becomes who's like the rat in the group. Group, you know, that like yeah. that kind of, you know, leap what we were doing. And so obviously then the meeting that night was very subdued. And then that whole kind of little movement within the group kind of died. And it was because it was like everybody wanted to make the national team. Like that's why you were there. And obviously if you pissed off anybody, you know, and actually the the girl that was kind of the ringleader, um, she her playing time did kind of nosedive after that. And you know, you're just kind of noticing those sorts of things like don't step out of line. And then 2006, they basically mandated that the whole team um, move to Vancouver for residency. Um, And again, it was like funded by the Kerfoot money, the Whitecaps owner. So at that time, um, three of the main players on the national team at the time, like Charmaine Hooper was at that point the most decorated Canadian player in history. Sherolton Nonan was like a starter at the 2003 World Cup and one of the best players on the team. And Christine Latham was another you know, starter on the team. And basically... Um, those three lived outside of Vancouver. So, you know, for the girls that were from Vancouver, it was kind of a bonus. Obviously, now you're going to get some funding and housing and whatever to you playing on the national team. But for people coming from outside of the Vancouver, like, you know, you had an apartment lease, you had a relationship, you had there was more things to kind of worry about and to just be mandated overnight to move to Vancouver didn't sort of really jive or whatever. So, um, those three players, um, again, within the team, there was kind of a bit of a grumbling and those three players, I think thought that they, everybody had their back and, and anyways, they didn't show up to a camp and basically they got cut from the team and they never played for Canada again. So that again sets the sort of the vibe for the like environment where it's like these coaches have absolute power and, you know, we have no power and you step out of line and you're gone. And, um, and also too, it was kind of almost like a, a, you know, metaphorical symbolism for all of it was like Evan Pellerud, the head coach of the national team is like living in a waterfront mansion that Greg Kerfoot owned. (laughs) Like all the other players are just, you know, their contract can get cut overnight. Like there's no, you know, there's no security to it whatsoever. And obviously, again, you see three of the best players, you know, speak up and then they're they're done. They're gone. Like you're a, Charmaine Hooper was literally the most decorated player of mm-hmm. Canadian soccer at the time and boom, just overnight gone. Um. Anyways, so that was kind of, again, like just to give you an idea of sort of the vibe around everything. And then, you know, again, for me coming from Denmark, like a girl on my team actually in Denmark was like 26, had come from the second division and um, moved up to our team the year we went to the Champions League final and was one of our leading goal scorers and was just crushing it. And, you know, she went from like second division up to the full national team in a year. And, um, you know, there's 10 different teams in the league. And if you're performing, you know, you get invited into the national team and there's not like a centralization of teams or power or whatever. Like it's, it's, you know, it's just very much performance based off of, you know, and if you don't like your team or your coach, you go to another team or coach. And and that was sort of, again, like I'd been in Denmark for two seasons and had sort of seen that there. And then I came back to Vancouver and I kind of, it just started to be like, well, okay, like this is the team you have to be on. <laughs> like either yeah. you the national team already or you haven't. And if you haven't, then you have to be, you know, performing on the white caps to make it onto the national team. And that's the pathway. Like there's no other, you don't like it, like no chance at the Canadian national team. So that was, you know, that was all immediately for me, like a red flag. And also too, like I said, the fact that we were driving all over Vancouver to do like appearances for the the club and stuff. And that continued even after our little, you know, the union meeting or whatever you want to call it. And so, um, yeah, so like all those things for me, like, like that kind of, set up sort of the environment, I guess you could say that. Um, and, and the thing with Berarda as well was that I actually knew him from when I was in high school. Like he, like the Vancouver soccer community, even the Canadian soccer community is quite small. I think like any mm-hmm. elite sport, you know, like everybody, you know, everybody at least through one part, you might be have like one degree of separation, but like everybody that's in that elite pool, let's say there's like, you know, 50 players or something, everybody knows everybody. And, and so you know, there's just like word travels fast. You know, it's just, it's, it's a tight group of people, you know, that sort of information flows through because of um, just the way that it, you know, it was sort of set up probably like most sports in a lot of countries anyways, as well. And so, um, yeah, so that kind of set the stage then. And and like I said, I had Berarda from when I was in high school and, you know, at that time he was, um, you know, just a young, like a younger charismatic kind of Coach and, and you know, again, at the time, like, I mean, I trained with him all through whenever I came home from college. I like, um, you know, where his the academy that he was, um, running stuff out of, like, I would go there, and all that's where all the elite players in Vancouver went. So, whether they were high school or Andrea Neal was on the, the national team captain at the time, like, that's all where we were, like, training out of. So, I dealt with it, like, I knew him quite well and had, like, a history with him, and I could see that just as he got more power um cuz i think by 2006 into 2007 um well definitely by 2007 he was the assistant coach on the full national team the head coach of the under 20 national team and the head coach of the white caps so i could see as his power got more concentrated like i could notice like a definite shift in his behavior and and again like i said to me it just it was it was really off and 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 again moving into 2007 Um, yeah, like I started to just sort of see a lot of stuff going on around me that like alarm bells in my head were going off and being like, this is not right. So I don't know if that sort of gives you a segue into whatever the, the next part of it. But that's kind of, I guess, hopefully that kind of gives a bit of background to sort of what the environment was like and how it kind of created the, I guess, the things that we were dealing with once 2007 hit
0: yeah I, it, that provides so much so much detailed context for for i think this whole discussion like just highlighting this sort of very top down hierarchical um power arrangement that not only had like athletes exploited in terms of like financial reward you're talking about going driving all over Vancouver for unpaid signing things and to do promo work for the, um, for the team, but also in terms of, of sort of professional goals as well. Like if you want to play for the Canadian national team, you're almost, well, as you put it, you're kind of forced into this team onto that one. And that, that provide like that context I think is, is, Kind of part and parcel to everything we've talked about on this show, we see it in in many places where they create these hierarchies of power where the athletes have very little agency yeah. to 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 move around um and, and so I, I think that that context is is amazing and i I'd like to ask you about your experiences that you detailed. In your in your blog post, which is um, again, it, we linked it in the sh- in the show notes, and it is it is a very detailed, very um, incredible, albeit horrible kind of story. But I'd like to ask you, insofar as you feel comfortable, to to kind of walk our listeners through what you experienced and what you witnessed after that sort of two thousand and seven time frame on the Vancouver uh, Whitecaps.
2: Yeah. So. So yeah, so moving into 2007, um like so at that I had actually had a um I got a serious injury at the end of or the middle of 2006 season and so I randomly uh I ended up going to Australia and um and like I said again just to give you context in terms of sort of how vulnerable you are as a player like I don't think I bought any new clothes for like wow. I don't know it was very like all my money was going towards physio and, and I was always, you know, again just trying to stay healthy. Like like that alone for me was a struggle and where a lot of my money went into. So
0: So even your physio was on your dime? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow.
2: Like, like I mean um, I mean, if, if, yeah, I mean, you, you'd you have maybe like a, a student trainer type that would be like taping ankles and that type of thing yeah. at games. But like, yeah, I mean, I, I had complex injuries. I mean, again, just training at the level that I was training at, like when I was in Denmark, we were training twice a day, almost every, you know, I mean, yeah, like it was a fully intense training load. And, and even again, once I moved back to Vancouver, I was training six days a week, you know, and, and doing extra. And I mean, I I was, I was really, really motivated and, and, and I, and I was, to be honest, probably like overtraining, you know, in terms of what Mm -hmm. I was putting in, but yeah, absolutely. Like, um, just in terms of my complex injuries, like I was in, and, you know, to be honest, like my attitude was like, this is what I'm putting, it, it, like this is what I want in my life right now, and I'm gonna put, I'm gonna, you know, I want to go to the best physio, and and I want to, you know, give this absolutely every single ounce of everything that I have to, to, you know, do this, you know, and if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it all out, you know, and and so that even, like I said, that that went that went into, you know, what I had to spend, especially as someone that that had a body that was breaking down a lot, um, yeah, so I got osteitis pubis, which is basically like inflammation of the pubic bone from um, overtraining essentially. Like I, I kicked long balls for like two hours, one, um, afternoon to again, and I was serving balls into, you know, players. So it's not the time to like, try your left foot, you know, like, you know, so I was just like firing ball, ball anyways. And then, yeah, then I, I felt something was off afterwards and then it just turned into this nightmare injury. And then, long story short was I ended up finding this um, physio in Australia off of like a random message board. Um, and I tried everything and I was so frustrated and I just felt like my everything was, you know, going under. And so I ended up, um, yeah, I, I had air miles and I had a friend that lived in Melbourne. And so just on of a hope and a prayer, I flew to Australia in like the fall of 2006 to try to get this injury fixed. And I was sort of losing hope that it was going to get fixed. Cause it was a really, it can be a really chronic career ending injury. And this guy literally was like a miracle worker and fixed me. And so, um, so I came back going into 2007, just like so grateful and excited to even be healthy and, and be on the field and super motivated and, um, yeah, and fit and all that sort of stuff. And then, so I had gotten invited in, um, so I was so I was the white cap season was basically from May until August. We trained the whole year, like informally as a group, but then once the curfew money came in in 2006 and the Canadian national team had sort of a more formal setup that was going on. So, um, again, I was sort of, you know, I'd played overseas professionally and I I was a good player at that point. And so, um, I kind of got invited into that training group to train with the national team while they were in residency going into the 2007 world cup. That was that summer. And with the idea also that I'd be playing for the Whitecaps that summer. So Bob was kind of the one overseeing me in the sense that like, you know, he was the one that kind of coordinated me and a couple of other players into the national team, like into the residency camp to be, you know, we were training all the time with them. And then then on top of it, you know, like that was kind of the first thing for me that was kind of, you know, upsetting me a little bit was because like at one point we literally like we trained with the national team twice a day on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And then once on Tuesday and once on Thursday with the national team. And then Bob was making us go to white caps practice. That the, was four of us on Tuesday night and Saturday mornings. Like, so like, yeah. So like, like literally we were joking at one point that we felt like we were in a game of like soccer survivor, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, where it was just like, we were just laughing. Like there's got to be video cameras and like the jokes on us to see if we can still stand. And he just was like, again, it was almost like an assert, like asserting his like authority over us. And we asked like, you know, Hey, could we maybe not go to a white caps practice? Like we've had 14 trainings this week. And it was like, like, well, what do you guys think you should do? And we were like, all right, well, like that answers it, you know, like we don't have a choice, you know? And so, um, so yeah, so, you know, that was, we were already like at an obscene amount of training and then having to go to white caps training on top of that. And then, um, you know, and it was like, I was kind of the one at that point that, like, you know, everybody was kind of coming to to kind of, you know, and I kind of made a point of taking care of the younger players. And there was girls in high school and stuff that were on the team. And like, one of the girls was in grade eleven, and you know, was on the full national team at that point. And um, and you know, she was from a family that sort of she didn't have a like a lot of support, and so um, she was struggling in school. And so like at one point, she was telling me how stressed out she was with her you know Spanish like class or whatever in school. So I said like, listen, like after practice on Thursday. Thursday, like, let's go to a coffee shop and I'll help you with like your homework. And we'll, I'll try and like, you know, see what I can do. So we like got to the coffee shop and she pulls out, like, it was, I mean, I would have been overwhelmed. I was like, a I I had done a master's degree. Like I, I was just like, you know, and I said to her, I'm like, is anyone help? Like, do you have a tutor? Like, are they paying for a tutor? And she's like, no, I have to do this all on my own. So, you know, I, I mean, my Spanish is horrific. So like <laughs> probably caused her like more grief than helped her, but like, um, yeah. But so, you know, so I'm seeing this poor kid that's like like barely struggling to stay afloat in school and like there's zero support. And I'm thinking in my head, like if this kid breaks her leg tomorrow, no, like none of these people care. Like they just care because she can score some goals and like, you know, so that pissed me off. And then another player that was again in high school, she was like a straight A student and she was on a semester system. And, you know, she had said to me, Like Bob's telling me that I have to miss class to come to practice, but I'm on a semester system. So if I miss a morning of school, then I'm basically like losing a lot of class time, you know, but he's kind of threatening my under 20 spot if I don't go and I'm stressed out about it. And I'm again, like, you know, that pissed me off. And then, Mm -hmm. um, and then my, my friend that I was carpooling with, um, you know, at one point, basically um, she was getting housing from the team that summer. And, and, um, and, and like, she had said, they showed her the housing and it was essentially she was going to be in like a closet for the summer and you know and she just said like again super polite because we're all so conditioned to be so grateful and so polite and so you know she just had said to our manager like is there any way that I could maybe like live in the living room or could we do something else cuz this room kind of isn't like kind of isn't going to cut it for this summer and he like went to town on her with that and like you know and and like sent her this nasty email and and like you know she sent it to me and and I again was just just like, this is so not right. And then, um, and then, and then like, and then I had had a bit of an injury and then I had said that to him. And again, he was sort of like, well, you're not going to go to national team, just being very controlling, like with that sort of opportunity and and just always sort of saying like, it's basically thanks to me that you guys are in this situation. and And with the insinuation in my mind of like, I can pull this away in a second, if you guys step out of line and like, so, just all of that really just started to like make me very angry. And, Um, And then the kicker for me was that I was driving to practice one day with my friend who was kind of in this crazy training routine between both teams with the national team and the white caps. And, and basically uh, there was a star player coming into town to play on the white caps that summer. And basically she wanted to go to practice and asked Bob if she could go to practice. And he lit into her so hard. Like she had to pull over the car and she was just like hysterically crying, like after she off the phone with him. And I'm like, all of this, I'm like, this is not okay. And, and, you know, you look in retrospect, like people like, like Bob are very controlling and, and someone down the road or like, you know, after the situation, when I was talking to someone last year that had had him as a coach kind of just like summed him up perfectly. Like, and uh, you know, he basically, she was like, you know, he either wanted to F you or destroy you. And like, that was sort of her way of kind of describing him and which was kind of perfect. And I like look back at kind of, you know, how was I able to sort of you know, because he never, from a sexual standpoint, like, I, you know, I, I never sort of dealt with that. And I, people like that, like, I, I've noticed are very controlling about who they allow into the environment. And, like, and I think the thing, when I think back is to, like, why did he like how how was i able to sort of like even be allowed to stay in that sort of environment like i think i mean i was very like i i think he knew how much i loved soccer and how much i wanted to play for canada and but I, but I, he didn't know that i sort of had a threshold in my head and i also had my irish passport and like i don't know like i just hit this point where i'm like you know, it, if I stay in this environment, like, I am compromising my integrity, and as much as I want to play for Canada, like, I'm not willing to compromise my integrity, and I'm not willing to watch my friends get bullied, and, like, nobody in this situation feels like they can say anything, and, like, I'm the one with an Irish passport and I can still play internationally if I like stand up to him. And I know if I stand up to him, I'm going to lose my national team spot and I'm not going to get invited back. But like, I'm just not willing to put up with this anymore. And and I remember even thinking like when I'm 40 years old and soccer doesn't matter anymore, like what kind of person do I want to be? And it's funny obviously now because I'm like 41 and I was like, good choice. Like 27 year old, you know, like, but, <laughs> um but yeah. So then, so then, at that point after my friend was like hysterically crying, I'm like, we've we've got to do something. Like we've got to tell somebody about this. Like, this is not right. You know? And so we had done a camp the week before with Bob Leonard who was the president of the white caps. And so at that point for me, like I had just decided like, I'm done. Like I I'm done with this, all of this. And, and so I, um, I had reached out to the Ottawa Fury, who was on the other side of the country, who had like a top team. But again, just a, with the setup, like it was basically like a suicide mission in terms of playing for Canada. But I was just like, I need to get out of here. Like, I can't do this anymore. But I told my friend, like, let's go talk to Bob Leonard Juzy. Like we'd done a camp with him the week before and we'd had like, you know, we just sort of had like a, a nice chat and, and he seemed sort of like a safe person with some power that we could go to. So I messaged him and I said, you know, could could we meet up for a coffee? Like we just have some stuff we want to talk to you about. So he was like, okay. So we went for a coffee. And I remember like at the time, again, just being super naive, but thinking like, you know, he, he almost didn't really want to hear all the information, you know, like we're like, we were just so had all this stuff we wanted to share. And obviously in retrospect, people in those positions don't want the information because then they have to do something with it. Right. But mm-hmm. at the time, like I, we were just desperate to have somebody know, you know, and like, even for me, like I was leaving, but I wanted my friends protected, you know, and, and, uh, because it just really felt like he just run rampant with his power. And, um, so anyway, so we talked to him, we told him everything. We begged him not to say anything because my friend was staying in town that summer. Um, and then, you know, again, I remember all of it, like it was yesterday. And it was like three days later, I was coaching. Um, I saw Bob Lenarduzzi calling. I had my friend take over my group. I walked, you know, away to take the call. And then we, he was like, you know, I talked to Bob, I talked to Bob, blah, blah, blah. And and he's like, and I said to him, did you, did you tell him it was us? And he's like, and he's like, I had to. And I'm like, like, why? You know? And, And yeah, and he had told him. He told him me and the other player that had gone to see him, like you know, and, and told him all this stuff about about Bob and what he was doing. And I was just so—I mean, I was upset too because I felt like I had roped. You know, I was sort of the one that told my friend to come with me, and. I felt guilty because now I felt like crap. Like I know, I know how vindictive he is and he's a bully and I know she's going to suffer the consequences. And she was a starter on the team the year before they, you know, we won the W league championship and she started and played every minute with like all the national team players there. 2007, they were all not playing because of the world cup. And like, she was playing so well, um, was in camp with the national team, everything. And then he benched her that whole summer. Like she didn't play at all. And then she was done with soccer pretty shortly after that and like you know and and yeah and i i was just so disgusted with like the fact that you know but again even still it was like yeah like you like you still sort of are conditioned as a female to still be polite and whatever to everybody but um i went to ottawa that summer and and i always say it was like honestly like being in an abusive relationship and sticking in it for so long and then all of a sudden like I went to Ottawa and felt like I just, you know, fell into the arms of like the perfect partner. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Where I'm like, why did I put up with that for so long? And like, I had so much fun that summer. I had like an amazing team an amazing coach. Like I like loved soccer again, but obviously like, yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of how that unfolded. And then, um, do you want me just to continue on to sort of how it ended up panning out with, um, all that or sorry i don't know i've been talking for a while (laughs) (laughs)
0: well i I was so i was like really interested while you were while you were talking and you mentioned a couple times that you were sort of conditioned that you and other players were like kind of conditioned to kind of just go along with what was being decided by the coaching staff could you speak to some of the ways in which like you were conditioned like it sounds like if I'm hearing you correctly, like this was a very, this was over a long period of time. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean like from a condition standpoint, it's just, again, in that environment, like if, if a coach, if you step out of line, you're gone. <laughs> like, mm. like, do you know what I mean? So it's like, they yeah. tell you to jump, but you jump, they tell you to, you're going to have 75 practices in a week but like you're at every practice working your butt off. Like, um, you know, it, it's it's like that was, you know, and, and again, like you've given up, you know, these are all really smart girls that have gone to university with master's degrees, um, could, you know, go out and get a great job if they wanted to. But like, we love soccer. And that was almost something that like I honestly felt like it was something that was like it was my passion for soccer and my friends' passion for soccer. Like that was used used as like a weapon against us. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and they knew like Bob knew how much we loved soccer. And like, and again, it was just like, you know, it, it was literally like, it's almost like they got off on like the power that they had over us. And whether that was like drive all over Vancouver and do appearances, or like I said, like over train or like that you just, you couldn't, you just, you didn't, you didn't step out of line. And like mm-hmm. I said, like you had seen the three girls that had, you know, in 2006, not shown up to that camp and taken a stand. And like, you saw the absolute power that they had in just kicking them out. And I think they tried to sue to come back in or something, but like, there was like no recourse. It was, yeah. So, so that's, I I think it was, and then, you know, and you just, like I said, like everybody, you know, and there was like the odd time that I would speak up even within those time periods, but, you know, and everybody would be like, thanks. like Thanks so much for saying something, but don't say that. I I was the one that said, thank you to you, (laughs) you know? And like, I don't know. It was just, when I look back now, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, why did I not just stay in Europe? And why did I ever even bother with any of that? But again, at the time, like, you know, and, and that's a thing like with sports and with the Olympics and the World Cup and whatever, like in those bubbles, like that's all that matters. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, and, and it's almost funny because, you know, like I remember uh, 2015, the World Cup final was in Vancouver and I remember talking to this guy that I was friends with. And I, you know, I made some comment about the world cup final and he was like, like what world cup final? And and I just, I was still kind of in the soccer bubble and I'm like, what do you mean? You don't know what the, like the world cup finals in Vancouver. And he's just like, I don't care about soccer. And I, I don't know, like, like, but that's how like warped you are in those bubbles, right? Like where it's, it's like, that's all that matters. And like the capital within, yeah, I I wrote like one of the theses like that I, that I did do like the theory, I, I can't remember what it was, but it was talking about like within different bubbles, like the, like the capital that you have within those bubbles, right. Whether it's like social capital or whatever it is, you know, but like within that, it was like the only thing that matters is making the national team, making the world cup, making the Olympics. And so, yeah, you are just like little robots within that environment. And, and yeah, like the coaches don't like you, they don't pick you, you know what I mean? And, and Mm -hmm. even down to getting funding, like, you know, they decide who's getting funding, um, you know, and, and, Again, that like, they just it when you have that kind of power, if you're at the slightest bit of a you know tyrant, I don't know what the word is, but like you know it's it's yeah you you can it's just ripe to get like misused, you know and and so yeah, so absolutely we were conditioned, like I said, because you're in that bubble, and that's all that matters, so
0: it's a common theme that we've like been. guests on this show have long pointed out we've talked to a lot of athletes that it seems like a common thread in in terms of when there's like harm that manifests in such like poignant and and horrifying ways Mm -hmm. it's the result of like not only like a structure that allows like a totality of control to be like centralized in very few people or or in some cases like one or two people Mm -hmm. but also a successful kind of weaponizing of your passion and your love and like the athletes love for the sport. Like it's, I think you you mentioned earlier like your passion was used against you. Like this seems to be a very common theme when we talk about harm in sport. Like Mm -hmm. we're going to take our athletes who want, to be successful they want to go out they want to win championships and we're going to use that against them so that we can get what we want out of them and this it's such a horrifying discourse it's just, it's just a horrifying thing that um i i sort of can't fathom how one would do that
2: well and i think it gets so normalized right because mm-hmm. you're all in that and it's you know, it's really funny. Like, I, I was actually just talking to one of my best friends today from when I played in Norway, and she was a Russian girl that I went to university with. And it was really funny because at one point I was, I was, um, you know, again, and also too, like all your friends are soccer players too, right? So it's like there's there's no like outside voices that are like ringing any alarm bells because you're all little soldiers in this like like psycho army that you know that like and you just there's no way out. But it was really funny because at one point there was something that I was upset about when I was in Norway and I was telling her about it, and then she just she's very blunt, like and and you know just I don't know if it's like typical Russian, but like just right to the point. And she was like she was just like she looked at me like, duh, you know, she's like, Kira, like to play at this level, all you, all you have to do is care about yourself. So of course they're not thinking about you or anything else besides what they want, because that's the environment that you guys are in. And I, it was like, she said it, like it, like it was so obvious to her and it was like the most brilliant thing I'd ever heard in my life. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, like you're totally right. Like that is like, You know, of course, everyone's acting like selfish jerks because, you know, everyone has to climb all over everybody in regular life and in the sport to like get to where they want to go. So, of course, and when it comes to personal matters, like they don't care about other people because they're so conditioned and it's just so normalized within the culture. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's everybody within it, it like is is on that sort of wavelength, I guess, and and. Um, yeah. And obviously now, like when you get out of it, you're just like, why would I have ever stayed in it? But when you're in it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, and and that's the biggest thing, like I've learned. And I think, you know, again, we can talk about it later on, but you know, my, my passion is like transparency and accountability because I just, if you, transparency, accountability, and like multiple pathways, if you have those three things, this kind of thing doesn't happen, you know, like maybe you have deviant people within the environment, but I always liken it to like, security cameras at 711 you know and like if if you know if let's just say there's no security bar or no security cameras at Seven Eleven, and people are going in and stealing chocolate bars. Like, even if maybe you're a good person, like, you know, you see everyone stealing around you. And so you're like, all right, well, there's no consequences. Why am I going to pay the $2 for the chocolate bar when like I can steal it too, you know, but you throw some video cameras up and like consequences for stealing them. Well, that kind of curbs the behavior. Right. And I, I just think that that kind of oversight is like what's completely lacking in a lot of sporting environments. And I definitely think it's, it's, I think if you honestly go back through, you know, all the sort of abuse sort of situations, like if there's accountability, transparency, and more than one way to get to the top, I guarantee you, you could quash most abuse in sports situations. That's just my opinion.
1: Yeah. And, and just sort of, and an, we do have a question to kind of talk about with the, the mediator that you had in the, in the investigation, because like, that is sort of another fascinating and awful twist of the story. But you know, when when you are responding to Derek's question about how it sort of creates this environment, the conditions, environment that where it seems sort of like a cult, you know, it's so interesting. And I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant here, but it's so interesting. When, um, we compare it to like what's going on right now with, with sport and the pandemic, because all of these people are like, well, these athletes want to play, just let them play. But it's like, yeah, they're saying they want to play because they are in this like tiny bubble of an environment where they are told by everyone around them and on the media that like, yes, they want to play and they should sacrifice their bodies. Right. So like, it's so interesting how this sort of cult, like environment that conditions people to just sort of say yes and to sacrifice everything for your dreams. Yeah. Yeah. It it exists for a reason. People create it for a reason. They sustain it because it serves their own goals. And as an athlete, like, yes, of course, athletes want to be like the best they can be. And they want to be as successful and victorious as they can be. And that makes sense. But it like, like you said, the way it gets normalized and actually twisted and used against people and then also used to like silence people. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's obviously evident in the story that we're talking about, but it's evident, as you said, in other abuse cases. And, and I just want to talk about it because we're seeing it so much right now. It's yeah, like so much of the rhetoric of like, let the athletes play. They want to play. And you're like, you literally are refusing to acknowledge any of the other dynamics that are at play here for these athletes. Total tangent. But I just, it, what you said just really, really brought it up for me.
2: Yeah, and I think the big thing too, you know, and and honestly, where I actually see a lot of friends um, that have played at the highest level, like struggle, uh, or even that like didn't quite make it to the highest level, like where self worth is so tied into like accomplishment within that bubble, and yeah, and 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 that's you know, like it, it's just it's really it's really interesting to me because I think now, like, um, yeah, like I, I mean, I just. I think you just have the perspective after you witness the sort of aftermath. And I think also too, like when you're within a situation, like let's just say as an athlete with like concussions, right? Like, like you kind of, sometimes you don't, you want to play. Right. And you're not thinking about what's my life going to look like when I'm 45. Right. Like, you're just like, I want to play and, and, you know, I'm a failure if I don't make this play or I don't win this championship or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like that's the framework. And, and I think again, when you look at like the, you know, I used to love the like Olympic montages, like when you're a kid and, and, you know, like the champion and, and it's, and it's just, it's interesting. Cause it's like, it says all these values about like what like you know what a champion is, and then like I said, like you get into those environments and you realize that it's like you know that like let's say in our situation, like you spoke up and you were brave, you got tossed, you kept your mouth shut, you carried sure. on, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. it's 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 so kind of like disorienting when you're in the situation because you're like you're like, but I thought that like if I worked the hardest and I did this and whatever that like, and if I make this team, that I have this like added worth to me that I don't have if I don't and and it's just, it's, it's really interesting. Like when you're, when you're in it and like, again, even, you know, people from the outside thinking it's like so glamorous and this, that, and whatever. And you're just like, you know, it's like, you can't even explain what the reality of it is because, um, yeah, like it's just, yeah. and, And I, I think again, like you said, it's, it's people making a lot of money off athletes that are perpetuating those sort of narratives, but it's to the detriment of the athlete, you know?
1: Absolutely. I was thinking about those Olympic profiles and like, man, I love those things for years. So like I totally get that. Um, yeah. Now it seems like in 2008 and, and this might have been when you and your as a result of you and your teammate talking to the owner, I don't remember. Um, but it seems that in 2008 was when the sort of higher ups at the Whitecaps decided that they needed to do some kind of investigation. So mm-hmm. could you walk through us, walk us through sort of what that, that was like at the time? Um, you also talked about in that 2019 post um, quote, how we were manipulated. So if you could walk us through that, that would be great.
2: Yeah. So, so I left in 2007 and then I went to Norway to play. Like I kind of was just like, I knew that I was done with the national team for, you know, taking that stand or whatever. And then I just, you know, it was just, it was as much as I was like strong and I'm going to like move on and just make the best of it. And this is the situation and I'm not going to dwell on it and go off to Europe. I mean, I still obviously was like, it was devastating, you know, but again, as athletes, it's kind of like, you're just used to sort of like punch in the face and like keep on going, you know? And so, um, but obviously like, again, I was good friends with tons of the girls that were still on the under 20. So, and like I said, like the environment was that, you know, like we're in touch all the time and I'm hearing about everything. And so I, so we, it was the president we had spoken to Leonard doozy, not the owner, but that's who Mm -hmm. who my friend and I in 2007, that summer had spoken to right before I left. So that
0: was the, sorry, sorry to cut you off Kara. That was the impetus for you leaving, correct? Like you went to Bob Leonard doozy and he kind of outed you to the coach and, and then you kind of found out that he did that. Well, he told you that he like, he had no choice, but to like, say the name. And then that was the sort of impetus for you leaving, kind of ultimately deciding to go to Ottawa.
2: Uh, I kind of, I had decided, so it was basically like, I, I had kind of just hit my wits end with all of it on the Monday and yeah. then on the Tuesday, like all my friends were staying around, including this one friend that came to the meeting with me on the Tuesday with Leonard doozy So I had already decided at that meeting that I was like leaving, but, but like I said, my friend that was with me was staying in all, like everybody else that I was friends with were going to be on the team that summer. So that was, so yeah, so it was. I just was shocked. Well, and also too for me, like at that point, it was, yeah. Like I mean, I still potentially could have come back. I guess. I mean, although, like, I mean, I I think I knew by leaving I was out. So mm-hmm. it was. It was. Um. It was just. It wasn't necessarily anything for me personally, but it was more again, sort of like a very clear message to everybody that there was like no safe place to turn or nobody to tell Mm -hmm. because my friend that was with me was going to stay. And so she ended up, like I said, by him doing that, got totally screwed over. And then everybody else, obviously like, we're all friends and they knew that that had happened. And so like, again, that's like the absolute, like no one's stepping out of line. Like there's nowhere to go, you know, and like Mm -hmm. we're going to get outed if we say anything. Mm -hmm. so
0: And that was also like a a seminal moment or, or, like this is a question it, it was that a seminal moment because it was kind of like you were also giving up any any hopes of playing for the canadian national team
2: oh yeah like that i mean that yeah. was it like i i knew yeah i knew by leaving vancouver like and standing up to bob i i like yeah i mean i knew i knew it was game over for me with canada but like i said like and i don't think again you know in the chess game of the whole thing like i don't think he thought that there was even a chance that it, like you know, I think he knew that I was like maybe more outspoken than most of the girls, but I think he knew how much I like, I mean, again, like I said, like I was flying to Australia to fix injuries and like living in Denmark and being super homesick, like all in sort of the, in like the quest to play at the highest level. And, you know, so I just, I don't think that he ever thought that I would have taken the stand that I did. But like I said, like I had, like the whole thing with Leonard doozy was like, obviously my friend got very hurt by it in terms of like, she got benched that whole summer. Everybody that was there got yeah. really hurt by it because they knew that there was like nowhere else to go. And it was just the icing on the cake for me where I'm like, I just need to get out of here. Like this is such a toxic environment, you know? So, yeah, so yeah. And like I said, so, you know, again, I'm, I'm like a person that tries to make up like the positive out of things and stuff. And so, I mean, but it was devastating. Like that was, like I said, like I, my entire, everything that I had done to that point, but like I said, I, I, to this, like, I'm, I'm so proud of myself and my career in the sense that like, you know, I never compromised my integrity to, for like any act like athletic accomplishment and, and, you know, as much as that. Yeah. But it, it was, it was devastating at the time and, and, um, definitely something that, yeah. Like, like it took a lot of, you know, therapy to get through or whatever, but, um, but anyways, yeah. So moving into 2000 and into 2008, I was hearing all this stuff from a couple of friends that were on the team and like, you know, again, they were probably a little more experienced than most of the girls. So basically the environment was that most of the girls had given up school for that year. And had moved out to Vancouver, and Kerfoot owned these apartment buildings. So all the you know girls that they're teenagers between whatever seventeen and nineteen. 19- um, they're all doing, you know, whether it was university or high school online, they're living in these apartment buildings in Vancouver and they're training all the time. And Bob had an apartment building in the same building as the girls, even though he had a family that lived in another suburb. So, you know, so basically there was, you know, he was everywhere for them at that time. And, and so I started to hear things from the girls like, yeah, like he's sending these like, you know, sexual text messages. There was like another story that I heard about how, um, like, you know, the, the the white caps had to do fitness in the morning and everybody, you know, was punishment and the older girls were asking why, you know, they were doing punishment. And the younger girls were like, Oh, you know, um, we were texting Bob from two AM at the club and he knew we were out and this and the and the older girls were like, Why are you texting Bob at two in the morning? you know, and, and they were again, they're like 17, 18 and kind of I don't know, like and, and also too, like I think the environment had gotten really sexualized. So I think that' again, like that line sort of, of what's normal and what's not in your 16, 17, like you don't know any different. And you know what I mean? Like, like where the older girls are sort of like, this isn't, you know, this isn't on guys. And so, uh, so I'm hearing about all of this and, and um, yeah. And, and so it, it was, it was just, you know, and again, like I was still in touch with a lot of the older players. And so it was just starting to kind of get around. And then there was a player in May that left the camp. She'd gotten a sexual text message and she'd reported it Um, to the Canadian Soccer Association and then she had left and then it's we came to like a lot of the story came out last year but our manager who kind of was the manager with the Whitecaps and I think she also was a bit involved with um, the Canadian Soccer Girls as well again because that was a thing too is that it's kind of hard to explain to people that weren't in that environment but like like I said, there was like the white caps, the under twenty team, and the full national team. And like players were going between all those teams. Like some people played on two of those teams. So there was a lot of mix and even with the staff and stuff too. So our manager Diane said that she raised the alarm to the white caps, like the, you know, head people or whatever that she was seeing stuff that wasn't, you know, like were red flags to her. So anyway, so basically it was so that he we heard that he had to go into sensitivity training is what they called it after um after this situation with these sexual text messages and the girl leaving to go back to you know Ontario whatever like but again it was all just very sort of like hush hush kind of you know Bob Bob has sensitivity training he's supposed to not do these things like he's not supposed to be alone with players but then people are seeing him alone with players like and nothing changed he was still in the apartment it was still going on so then basically that summer then um you know I guess what had happened was a lot of the older girls were Evan, the national team coach was leaving and the Olympics was that summer. So a lot of the older players were retiring and Bob's name started getting thrown around as like a potential replacement for the full national team head coach. So the older girls were like, no way, <laughs> like, you know, have you not heard what's going on with the under 20 team. And I think at that point they were like, okay, the sensitivity training that we didn't monitor at all didn't work. So uh, this looks like it could be like a forest fire potentially. Like we mm-hmm. needed Thing. So I was, you know, again, I remember all of it. It was my 29th birthday. I was in Sweden with the Irish national team. And um, one of the older players had said, like, she was kind of the one that was kind of um, coordinating with the Whitecaps and the Canadian Soccer Association, this mediator. And again, it's like, none of us have experience with any of this before. So you just, you know, this is what the head people are telling you is this is the, the way that the protocol is going to be. So you're trusting that this is the way the protocol should be, which to be honest, like, even for me in retrospect, I'm like, I'm like, man, like, why didn't I call the police? Like, I, but you just didn't know, right? Like mm-hmm. that's just what they're telling you to do. So, and you're assuming that if it was something to call the police that they would have called it, you know, because they're calling a mediator. in. so Anyways, basically, I it was like back in the day of like dial up internet, I think, and like I there was like the one computer cord at the hotel in Sweden, and I woke up before everybody and like talked to this mediator for an hour and like you know basically told her all the stories I you know I wrote in the blog about what I had heard, and you know so whatever she took the story and then you know, and then, and then that week, one of my friends on the under 20 team, like called me and was like, Kira, like, you know, he's pulling aside people at practice and asking them like what they know. And he knows the investigation's going on and please don't say anything that I've like told you or like, you know, and, and i I was like furious. I'm like, what do you mean? He's not like, he hasn't been pulled off the field with them. Do you know what I mean? And like, so, so I was like fuming and then anyway, so then, and then eventually he was pulled off the field and then I got an email like a few days later that was basically like, you know, just to let you know, thanks for everything. This is from the player that was coordinating with the mediator. Um, you know, the mediator said that he, you know, she's recommending that he's not in a position of power anymore. Um, that he won't be coaching anymore and that they're going to like, let him go. I just wanted to let you know that public announcements coming later this week. So I'm like, cool. Right. Like at least, you know, for all of this, like we finally got this, like, you know, person. (laughs) I won't swear, but like, yeah, like we've gotten this tyrant like off the field and, you know, small victory, whatever. And then I'll never forget the reading the press release of, you know, Thursday or Friday that it came out. And it was like, we've mutually parted ways. We wish him the best of luck in the future. And that was it. And you're just like, like, what do you mean mutual Parting of ways, you know, and and then three months later, again through our little soccer grape, or yeah, through the grapevine, it was yeah, Bob's back on the field coaching teenage girls again. Wow. So, anyways, yeah, so that kind of that's sort of what led that that was that all that, and then last year we came to find out, and I mean, again, I don't want to confuse people, but just while I'm talking about the mediator. Last year was just, you know, it was crazy in terms of just all these people reaching out to me. And I got this random Facebook message from somebody I didn't know, like six weeks after I wrote the blog being like, you know, I have some information that I think can help you guys because the mediator's name and Chopra got put out in the media and, um, this guy reached out to me and so 10:30 at night, I'm like calling some random guy that I don't know with like, who has a tip, you know? And he basically was like the mediator. I just want to let you know, um, you know, and Chopra is her name. And, and he's like, I worked with, um, Bob Berarda's brother when in 2008, and he's like, and I remember, you know, Bob coming to work with us. And obviously, I didn't know why, but I've been following the story because, you know, the fact that I was working there in 2008. And he's like, the last name Chopra has been really bugging me. And he's like, and I and I remembered today that it's because um, the brother of Bob Berarda had a business associate called Manny Chopra. And he's like, I've spent the whole night googling trying to find the connection between Ann Chopra and Manny Chopra. And I found the father's obituary and their brother and sister. So the mediator you guys talk to was do, the brother was doing business with Bob Berarda's brother what the heck
0: <laughs> it was crazy. Like,
2: yeah like yeah that last year was like being in a live Netflix series in terms of like every day waking up being like what insane twist but like and again that's never that link has never been pursued or asked about or it's just sort of a known fact and and then and then on top of that last year when they were trying to get information out of the um, mediator apparently there was a non-disclosure signed mm-hmm. involving you know sexual misconduct against minors so i'm not sure the yeah i'm not sure how, how like that works but that anyway so the mediator um, was definitely not a mediator. And then the other thing too, is that, I mean, she was, she's a lawyer and she, I would think she was like an ombudsman or something. Um, you know, but anyways, yeah, obviously extremely sketchy, non-disclosed link to the perpetrator. And then, um, and then, yeah, also to, um, what was I going to say about her? But anyways, yeah, that, that was something else. Like I said, that, that came out last year. Oh, and, and when they were interviewing people in 2008, they didn't, they didn't interview one girl on the under 20 team they just interviewed like three of us that were older players. So it wasn't, there, it, there was no investigation. And, and I guarantee you, like if the cops had been called in 2008, like this all would have ended probably, you know, again, I'm not going to say obviously, but but I'm sure that there would have been, you know, information gleaned at that point that would have made this, you know, Whatever, like it, it would have ended in two thousand and eight, and here we are in twenty twenty still talking about it. So, mm-hmm. the system definitely failed us, and and again, it it was a huge cover up. So,
1: yeah, and and you know with it, with this information about the mediator having a, com- a conflict of interest, I mean that's exactly what this mediator had, right? um it, it of course it not only shows it's a conflict of interest for Berarda, but also with the Whitecaps, right? So like why oh, do they hire her.
2: Hmm. And we've never gotten answers. Like, I mean, and you know, the, this this guy had his own theories and stuff about it, but he he made it seem like he thought that it was like a definitely like a plant sort of to put her in there. So, mm-hmm. but yeah. again, like, there's nowhere there's nowhere for us to, you know, it's it's not like we get to sit her down and ask her what what happened or or you know, again, or why the police wasn't called or or any of that, you know. So.
0: It would be on brand in terms of like this totality of control. Like you're even talking about how, was it Leonard or Leonard doozy who owned or somebody owned like the apartments that everyone was staying into? I don't, I don't know if, if you said yeah. that is, that is like, it, it's, it's just too much. It's too much. I don't understand how structurally how people wouldn't recognize this, like from the outside people who could, do something about it because cool. there's just too much power and control.
2: Well, and there's no oversight to it either, right? Like yeah. and, and the yeah. other thing, the other thing that's worth mentioning is that Victor montagliani who's the current FIFA vice president, was mm-hmm. the vice president overseeing the national teams in 2008, so would have been directly involved in the conversations around this and the cover up of it. Oh. So, but again, like you know, you just there there's no there's no recourse. But the the more that I'm I mean again, like Whatever way you guys want to take the conversation, but but I, I think the more that I'm I, the more that I've been digging and and learning about the structural stuff, like you can see that there's just, you know, there's basically it's all about protecting the organizations. and it's, you know, it looks good on glossy you know websites and stuff to say it's about the athletes. but it's literally everything is set up to protect the organizations. and you don't really realize those structural flaws until you're in the situations. and you can just see how, you know, isolated and traumatized, and all those sorts of things that people are within it, and and you know, again, you just—I don't know, like I—I I don't know where I've gotten, like the fight, like, but I'm just so incensed by all of it, and and I just, anyways, yeah, but but it's—I—I I mean, and and I I know how lucky I am in the sense that none of this—I—I I don't even think that there would still be a fight to be in, only that the fans walked out, but again, not to sort of. Like I said, it's, it's a very complex story, but take it from wherever <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to like, but, yeah. but yeah, like, I, I think I'm just, I, I'm, I know from our story is that the, the whole reason that there's even still a fight to be had and information to be gleaned and, you know, motivation and all that sort of stuff. Um, It's, it's all because the fans walked out of the games last year and and it takes an outside entity to step up to really have any kind of recourse because so much of this stuff, it just, you, they, they beat you down, you know? And, um, and again, like you can just see, yeah, it's been, it's been a fascinating, just to sort of I don't know if you guys know. Is it Man's Search for Meaning that book where he's in the Holocaust and he takes the approach of just stepping back and observing? And he says that that's sort of how he like mentally was able to sort of survive the situation. And I feel like, yeah, like just stepping out of all of this and observing it is. It's it's just been it's been a fascinating like sociological study on how victims are silenced and why this stuff Mm -hmm. is able to happen again and again and again. So
1: know, Abs- absolutely. You're, you're totally spot on. And, and I want to go back to this point. We were going we to ask you about it since you had given us this information about um, with the FIFA vice president. And the thing that's interesting is um, when I interviewed Dr. Georgia Servant about the history of gymnastics, uh, one question that I had for her was, was sort of like, what is the role of the FIG, which is the International Gymnastics Federation's, like what role is the FIG and the Nassar abuse scandal, and also all of the abuse issues that have come up with them gymnastics. And mm-hmm. she was saying how they've like more or less remained silent, if, except to say, you know, like we support athletes and we're all about a healthy atmosphere and we're going to provide workshops, you know, all that typical kind of BS yeah. And so I would love if you could sort of highlight even further, you know, what does the role of this FIFA vice president show? Like, what do you think that shows about sort of how far the cover-ups go and what this may also say about, I don't know, soccer internationally?
2: Um, I mean, I think the whole Me Too movement has started to get, um, you know, I I think that there's there's been a lot of high profile cases. Um, The, I want to say the president of the Afghani Soccer Association was banned for life for raping players. Um, There was another situation in Haiti um, with somebody high up that again was sexually abusing players that, you know, that, that sort of gotten coverage. So it is, it is an issue that, has been getting coverage um and i know i i know someone that works for the un and and i know that the un recently um signed like a um is it a memorandum or understanding or something with fifa that you know in terms of sort of again with like gendered with violence against women and and within and fifa you know sort of i'm not i'm not sure exactly sort of the technicalities of it but Anyways, the UN, the women, like, within UN department or whatever has signed something with FIFA anyways, acknowledging that FIFA is going to take steps to be a leader or whatever with, you know, ensuring that women don't suffer, you know, violence within the organization or something. So, I mean, I think that there's there's definitely, I mean, it's it's starting to pop up. I mean, obviously FIFA is, like, an incredibly sexist organization in terms of just, like, structurally with things that, you know, even – Um, I know whatever national teams are fighting for, even with like world cup winning pay and, and um, Mm -hmm. you know, just the stuff that that's gone on that the U S women have gotten a lot of publicity with, um, you know, the, the 2015 world cup final being on turf and that would never happen in men's football and like all those sorts of things. So um, I mean, I think FIFA knows that there is a spotlight. Um, It'll be interesting to see as this unfolds, you know, if there's any kind of pressure on Victor Montagliani to, discuss his role. And and I think obviously it's going to really hinge on if there's a conviction in the Berarda case, because obviously, you know, there's, it's, you know, over 20 years, nine charges for victims. So, um, obviously getting a conviction's important in terms of, you know, basically at this point it's their alleged crimes I guess you could say, but um but anyways, it, it I mean it's it, it'll be interesting to see if there is a conviction. Um, you know, I think even with the charges, like I think it's sort of upped everybody's realization of how serious this is and I think how much from a ramification standpoint the cover-ups in 2008 are like now it's kind of like this is a legitimate potential sexual predator that you guys allowed back into the community and again obviously that's not a fact until the convictions come through but um but yeah like I think that it'll be interesting to see but but the thing that I mean that I've really noticed is that there's a there's just there's not a lot of recourse like you know what I mean and and I think again it's that absolute power um yeah, that just that, that creates a lot of the dysfunction and just honestly, like repeated trauma, traumatization of victims, you know, the, the silencing piece of it, because, um, yeah, like you just there's no re- there's no there's nowhere to go nowhere to turn.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the end of sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at end of sport pod check out our website at www.theendofsport.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please support the show through our Patreon, which can be found on our website. Until next time, friends.